You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the editor of the country's leading tabloid magazine about M&A, The National Acquirer, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Mark Lemley, a professor at Stanford Law School and the director of its program in law, science, and technology. And late last year, he co-authored a paper called Exit Strategy that ruffled quite a few feathers in Silicon Valley. In it, Mark and his co-author, Andrew McCreary, argued that by focusing on an exit in the form of an IPO or acquisition by a larger company, startups and venture capitalists are suffocating innovation in the tech industry. He is speaking my language. Mark, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, a lot of legal stuff because we're going to talk about robotics. I mean, but let's talk. This is a topic I talk about quite a bit. And the FTC recently is going to start looking at a lot of these acquisitions. Let's just get right into it. So talk about your paper that you were trying to achieve with exit strategy. Sure. So the basic idea is, if you think about it from outside venture capital and outside Silicon Valley, the kind of odd fact that if you start a company in Silicon Valley, first thing you got to figure out is how you're going to end it. Right. Right. Uh, And... How you're going to end it means how you're going to get paid, how the venture capitalists are going to get paid. Traditionally, that end has been an IPO. Mm -hmm. You go public, you sell your stock to the uh, world, and everybody gets rich. Uh, And you keep running your company. Mm -hmm. But IPOs have gotten fewer and further between. Uh, They were 80% of exits in the 80s. They were 50% in the 90s. They're now less than 1 in 10. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what's replaced them is acquisitions. Say that again. Let's just make that clear to people. It was how many percent? It was was over 80% in the 1980s. 80%. 80%. Most of them. Yes. Dropped to about 50% in the 1990s, mm-hmm. uh, and now it's about 1 in 10. All right. Explain that why that happened. So I think there are a number of things that are going on. It got harder to do an IPO. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've increased the regulatory burden. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of it is also that venture capitalists are looking for bigger and bigger exits. Mm-hmm. Uh, a kind of pretty good uh, return doesn't does, didn't look great. Mm-hmm. And the alternatives also started to look more attractive. And the biggest alternative is selling the company to an existing business. Mm-hmm. And now there are companies in Silicon Valley that literally don't know what to do with all the cash they're sitting on. Right. Uh, and Apple, so they, Google. Exactly. I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars in money that they can't spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so increasingly it gets harder uh, and later to IPO. 
And that means you have to wait longer to get paid. And that means you need to get paid more money if you want to bring a return to your investors. Mm -hmm. Or on the other side, you've got this uh, attractive uh, offer from a Google or a Facebook or an Apple uh, that says, hey, we'll pay you a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So we've increasingly seen the shift not only to acquisitions as the exit strategy for startups, but to acquisitions by dominant incumbents. Right, right, which is a problem with innovation, which I talk about constantly. I'm, I'm so glad you wrote this paper. So when you talk about that, it's, so it's this idea that startups are harder to do, and they're also the scrutiny is what people don't want to go into, and then there's more capital in the system to slow it down, and so therefore scrutiny and accountability don't happen as they might happen as going public, correct? So, well, I, so that's right. I mean, so, right, exactly. You can avoid the scrutiny that you would get if you went public. Um, and in fact, you may be able to avoid scrutiny altogether from the antitrust authorities. So mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, antitrust law has done, we have a re- process for reviewing mergers in mm-hmm. advance to see if they're anti-competitive. Uh, but we, we put some thresholds on it because we don't want to, you know, every time a mom and pop store, you know, buys another mom and pop store, we don't want the yeah. antitrust division involved. But one of the things we've seen is that as companies start acquiring startups, they can buy them up before they hit the merger threshold and therefore avoid any antitrust scrutiny. Antitrust division doesn't even know it happened. Right. There, in fact, there, are, there was an example uh, uh, just this past week uh, reported of a, of a company that stripped its assets and gave away a bunch of stuff to get below the threshold before it could be acquired mm-hmm. uh, so that that acquisition would, uh, would avoid antitrust scrutiny. All right. We're going to get into that in a second, antitrust, because there's so many parts of this. But first, let's talk about the idea of how we got this idea of exit. Um, that makes sense that people would want to make money from their things. But what change – talk about the change – of what exit meant. Yeah, so I mean, I think so venture capital is already a change from kind of normal financing, right? right. You don't you don't need to exit if you're, you know, if you're uh, making building a railroad 100 years ago. Right. right? You borrow money from the bank, bank and you pay it back. Exactly. Right. And the way you pay it back is you make a profit, you make money and you right. continue with your business. And you pay interest, etc. Right. right. Um, and so venture capital I think popped up to serve an unmet need, which is uh, here are here's a company that has real promise in the future but can't actually start paying interest right now because mm-hmm. it's not making profit right now. Right. Uh, uh, and so we will basically front you the money, uh, but in return, we want to get paid quite a lot at the back end once you succeed, once you take off. Right. And so the so they needed a way to cash out that investment, uh, and the, the way we've cashed out the investment is the IPO. Um, but I think, you know, there, there are a number of factors here that probably feed on each other, right? So... We worried about uh, IPOs, especially after some of the market crashes. We worried about kind of naive investors mm-hmm. coming into a company and 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 losing a bunch of money. So we wanted to make it harder uh, for people to go public without fully disclosing all of the uh, all of the information. After the 2007 financial crisis, we we ramped up the uh, disclosure requirements in general for publicly traded companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being public is less attractive than it used to be. All right. Well, talk about it because one of the things, you, there were a lot of companies that went public even before that in the 2000s period where they were just not businesses and they would have enormous losses. Now, one of them was Amazon.com, um, which was called Amazon.bomb at the time and it had constant losses even though it had gone public. Let's look at that company, for example. So they their exit strategy, they went public like yeah. everybody else did, but they went public with not a lot of not very good financial tables for anybody to look at. And then they managed to change that over the course of time. That couldn't happen today, correct? I think it's harder and harder to happen. Right. I mean, and, um, 
you know, it's it's not that it's impossible, but it's the the pressures seem to be against it, right? Because the VCs want out; they want to mm-hmm. get paid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the investors may be more nervous about it; they want to see a profit. They they did see a bunch of companies that went public and didn't actually have a business model and mm-hmm. didn't do well. Right. So you're not as likely to just sort of run up the stock price of a new IPO just because it's now on the market as right. you were 20 years ago. Uh, Amazon's a really interesting example to me because they don't fit the kind of model the way economists and antitrust lawyers think mm-hmm. about uh, market power, mm-hmm. right? The, our worry with market power is always you're going to take over the market, and you, when you take over the market, you're going to charge us high prices, and we won't have any choice. We won't have anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. And Amazon is a remarkable company because it's basically taken over the market over a 25-year period, successive markets, by keeping prices low and keeping service quality good. Mm-hmm. And antitrust doesn't really know what to do with that. Right. Right, right. We're going to get into that okay. in a second. But let's talk first about with IPOs. So what happens now to IPOs? Because recently there's been a whole bunch where they go go public, and like WeWork, for example, and it's laughable. The, the numbers are laughable. People are wondering about the control of the company. There's all kinds of things happening. Why would you go do an IPO anymore? Right. I mean, I, so I think the answer is the, the only reason to do the IPO is – I really want to stay in business as an independent company, and I want the I want my employees to get paid. I want my VCs to get paid, but I want to keep operating as an independent company. And the pressures are pretty strongly against it. Right? It's hard to turn down the Google or the Facebook offer. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of the ones that are now the dominant folks, like Facebook, I think is a is a clear example. Um, ended up going the route they did because their CEOs were both kind of willful enough and had enough power over their own company mm-hmm. that they could turn down very lucrative offers to sell the company right. and say, no, I want to keep doing it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, you, you face a lot of pressure and a lot of mm-hmm. headwinds. As uh, Adam Newman uh, found out with WeWork, for right. example. Talk about that a little bit, what happened there. Yeah, so I, don't, I mean, I don't know the details of, of, of all of WeWork's uh, financials, right? But I think one of the Right. One of the things that happens when you go public is you get uh, you get a lot of scrutiny. You mm-hmm. get a lot of scrutiny into the financials. You get a lot of scrutiny into the, mm-hmm. the business model and where it's going and also into the team. And some companies, I think, sort of struggle with that, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and the – I mean, the market is – you know, it's a it's a herd mentality in a, in a lot of ways, and so if the market decides you're in you're you're in trouble, then you probably yeah. are in trouble. Yeah, exactly. So when you think about what happens to IPOs, if these are the trends where there's fewer and fewer IPOs, I mean, allegedly uh, Airbnb is supposed to go public. There's a whole bunch, and even now, everyone's like, well, maybe they won't. What what is the market for IPOs now, and and how is that changing? What do you see happening? Yeah, so I think one of the things you see as we've seen fewer of them as it gets harder, they tend to be later in a company's life. Airbnb has been around for a long time, yeah, they have. right? Uh, they tend to be bigger because if it's later in a company's life for the venture capitalists to get the payout that they want from an IPO, it's got to be a big IPO. Right. Um, you know, some of that is anchoring this idea of unicorns and billion-dollar valuations. Nobody wants to be a non-unicorn. Yeah, so, but they all come down. Right. I mean, uh, every one of them is come down. But that's what we're aiming for, right? That's right. what people, that's, that's kind of become the benchmark that people are shooting for. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that that sort of has to be the model, right? You, you could imagine sort of going public relatively quickly with a $100 million valuation, and that mm-hmm. might be the right thing to do for another uh, for a number of companies. But it's not happening. But it's not happening. Right. So what happens to the IPO market then? So, I mean, I think it ends up being, uh, right, as we concentrated in fewer companies and bigger companies and later companies, they get more scrutiny. 
the payoff post-IPO has to be pretty big, right? Mm -hmm. So I have to have a story that I'm going to continue a growth pattern uh, that has gotten me to the point where I'm big enough that I'm an Airbnb. Mm -hmm. um, those are harder and harder to sustain, and fewer and fewer companies can sustain them. So we're, we're already moving now towards concentration in the markets. So, so we'll get to concentration, but will there be even fewer IPOs or IPOs that are less impressive? Because you're saying if people, by focusing on exit strategy, that's what creates this, this idea of a big, giant boom. Yeah. So I think the answer is we might see fewer, mm -hmm. and, they, and they might be, I mean, they might be just as big, whether they're impressive, whether they succeed once they've gone out is another matter. But I don't, you know, I don't see a move towards the kind of keep the small, reasonably but not hugely profitable company running and have mm -hmm. it grow at a reasonable but not exponential pace. That doesn't seem attractive to the venture capital community. Mm -hmm. And so that's not what people are pushing you for. And so those companies, I think, end up getting bought. Right. Not not going public. Not going public. So what happens to the IPO market then? Well, I mean, I think it gets smaller and it gets concentrated with fewer and fewer players. And that's uh, both on the on the company side, but probably then also, you know, in the underwriters and, and everything else. Uh, and I think we drive this uh, continued uh, uh, move towards the easy, the safe strategy being just get bought by Google. Just get bought by Google. And I think to the extent that you now see a bunch of companies – starting, right, whose business model seems to be, let's get bought by a Google or a Facebook mm -hmm. or an mm -hmm. Apple. All right. So when you have an IPO market like that, is there a way to change the idea of keeping these companies private? Is there another way to do this without, you know, this idea of focusing on the exit? Yeah. I mean, I so, I mean, in the paper, we talk about a variety of sort of carrots and sticks. I mean, mm -hmm. I think you could make IPO and make being public easier than you currently do. Right. Um, by re relieving regulation. By relieving some of the regulation. Mm -hmm. I think you could find other non-public ways to get the venture capital and the and the employees paid. Mm -hmm. So if we find a way to— Let uh, more people invest in private let companies. Let more people invest in private companies, create and open up secondary markets. We've seen some moves in that direction, but I I think we could do more to try to say, hey, cashing out as a venture capital doesn't have to mean we're ending the company mm -hmm. if we don't hit the billion-dollar IPO. It could mean now a new group of investors comes in. Maybe now it's a bank who is willing to loan money. Maybe it's a you know, private equity group that does mm -hmm. later-stage infusions of capital. The, the early investors get paid, and the company continues to operate as a, uh, as a going entity. What is the best reason for going public? I mean, I think the best reason for going public is you want to keep operating and you need the money. Right. And, um, and you want to make get, create a liquid opportunity for your employees. Right. Uh, yeah. Although, I mean, you know, I think with employees, right, exactly. And I think in, with employees, it's always a tough choice because you want those employees to get paid, mm -hmm. uh, right? They've often been sort of taking sub-market wages mm -hmm. and taking stock options. The more successful your IPO is, the, the tougher a retention issue you have is, yep. right? Yep, 100%. Uh, yeah. And so— I mean, I'm not sure. I, mean, I think if you didn't if you didn't need the money and you were just making a profit, I'm not sure a company would go public except that there are a bunch of people who are holding stock options that aren't currently worth anything until right, they go which public. which is how you got them doing. All right, we're here with Mark Lemley from Stanford Law School. He wrote, uh, co-authored a paper called Exit Strategy about uh, by focusing on the exit in the form of IPO or acquisition, startups and venture capitalists are suffocating innovation in the industry. We'll get to that, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the acquisition of small companies by larger companies when we get back. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. 
because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Mark Lemley from Stanford Law School. We've been talking about the idea of exit strategy and how it's sort of, it's dominated Silicon Valley forever, the idea that there is there's an end point to your innovation, essentially. And one of the things that's happened with the decreasing numbers of IPOs is the increasing numbers of acquisitions by companies. And just recently, I wrote about it recently in the New York Times, the FTC is looking at all these smaller acquisitions. There's a tendency to focus on the large acquisitions, like a WhatsApp or an Instagram, but there's all kinds of acquisitions happening at the very bottom part of the of the food chain in Silicon Valley and in tech, um, including companies that people buy for talent, for a feature, to add a feature to a larger company, and in, in in the more malevolent ways, killer acquisitions, which is to get rid of competitors. Let's talk a little bit about that idea, that people make companies to be acquired or that they just have no choice because they can't break out in any way because of these large companies. Talk about the implications of that, Mark. Yeah, so I think the implications uh, are that we are both driving and then cementing concentration in the tech industry. So mm-hmm. there have been a lot of people lamenting the the cementing of uh, monopolies among right. the tech giants. We've had monopolies in tech for a long time, but the thing we've had is what economists call Schumpeterian competition, which oh, is— Oh, that's a big word. Competition for the market. Is that a big law school? Market. That's why I didn't get into law school. <laughs> Schumpeterian. Jo- Joseph Schumpeter was an economist in Austria in the, right. the turn of the century. Clearly Austrian, but go ahead. <laughs> and he said, um, you know what, sometimes— Competition isn't the normal, well, the gas stations are across the street and they have a price war. Mm -hmm. Sometimes somebody has the market and what you want to do is be the next somebody, right? I'm Mm going to be the next Microsoft. Uh, Nintendo's going to be the next Atari. Sega's going to be the next Nintendo. In the same market, right. Exactly. But sort of replacing it as the leader. So instead of just we have a bunch of companies with equal or low market share, um, you are the leader, but that prompts a bunch of companies to come in to try to replace you by making a better product, maybe Maybe by coming in kind of in an adjacent or a complementary mm-hmm. market right. that renders yours just not as important. Right, right. 
And that kind of competition has stalled in the last 20 years. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that's driving a lot of the concerns. So there's nobody that wants to out-Google Google. No, and nobody's interested in it. And actually, I just was doing an interview with uh, Ben Horowitz. who so talked about that. And he said, I'm not going to invest in search. I'm not going to invest in social media. I'm not going to invest in commerce. And I said, why? And he said, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Why would I? Why would I do that? And, and that didn't used to be the case. There would be someone— that Google wanted to best Yahoo, Blank wanted to best, and that doesn't occur. Exactly right. And and I think if it does occur, mm-hmm. well, who, what's going to happen is Google's going to buy you. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it gets harder to go IPO, as acquisition looks more attractive, even if we had the next uh, better Google, the next better Facebook, right? they're more likely to get bought up by that dominant company. Mm-hmm. And so we perpetuate the same company in that position. And if you think about the sort of big tech companies now, mm-hmm. they're all 15 years old or older, most of them are 20 years old, that's an eternity in internet time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, the idea that we've had the same company on top Mm -hmm. in search for more than 20 years is remarkable. Right, right. I always say, when I read speeches, I said, when's the last time a search company was started? And I was like, Google, it wasn't. When's the last time a social media company was started? That would be Snapchat, which Facebook has done its level best to put out of business because it wouldn't sell. Exactly. And when's the last time we had a big commerce player? We haven't. We don't. And this creates an innovation desert, essentially. So what should happen here? I mean, it makes sense that these companies, I don't begrudge them that they would buy these for features. Sometimes, like, they want to make something better. A lot of times they want to get the talent because there's such a talent uh, war going on. Um, which makes perfect sense. But it's the areas of killer acquisition where they want to kill off a possible competitor or a new innovation that's more problematic, I think. I think that's right. Uh, Yeah, the killer acquisitions are definitely the worst. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I'll say that even the ones that are done in good faith, right, Mm -hmm. that, uh, oh, I want to add the feature or, you know. Give me an example. uh, Well, I mean, so I think um, it's hard to know because a lot of them disappear, right? Mm -hmm. But but a number of companies that might have sort of had independent uh, existence. um, Competitive existence. uh, uh, Nest Labs, Mm -hmm. for instance, goes into Google. Fitbit. um, uh, Oculus gets bought by VR. Mm -hmm. Instagram gets bought by, sorry, from Facebook, uh, gets bought by Facebook. Instagram gets bought by Facebook. Facebook. Uh, And, you know, some of those companies do quite well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've added the feature. But even if they do quite well, they do quite well kind of now as part of the large conglomerate rather than as a separate independent base of consumer uh, choice and power. And some of the companies don't do quite well. So some of the companies, even the ones I think bought because we, we like the feature, we find it interesting, well, you know what? The people turn out to be more useful to us over here, or mm-hmm. it's not making money for us in the short run, and we are a publicly traded company, so maybe we're going to divert the resources somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so— So they can't be what they should have been. Yeah, and a, and, and a lot of those things get shut down, and, and uh, a number of people, including Tim Wu at Columbia, have sort of documented sort of all the companies that Google or Facebook have purchased and then shut down. Right. It's really hard to know— from the outside, whether that was a decision to buy it, to shut it down, whether the technology just didn't work and it wasn't going anywhere, or Or whether— it didn't thrive within the environment. Exactly. But I think at least some of them would have thrived outside the environment Mm -hmm. and didn't make it inside the environment, either because we shut them down deliberately or because it's just a different culture and not a Is that a dumb thing for these companies to do? Probably not, right? It makes perfect sense. No, I think think that's— Their incentives are to do this. Absolutely, right. They forestall competition. They get, at best, at worst, they get some good new employees. Mm -hmm. 
and they have $250 billion in cash sitting around they don't know what to do with, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is this is literally about the best investment you can make is mm-hmm. investing in foreclosing competition or co-opting it, bringing it into your existing monopoly. But it's not good for the world. Mm-hmm. All right, so talk about that, why that, that, and what should happen. And we'll get to antitrust in a minute, but the ability to do this, it makes perfect sense that the venture capitalists and the owners of these companies would want to sell it because they have no, they, they're not going to, die. Like, dying is probably the other option, or it's a super hard road to get there. But you don't see these Mark Zuckerberg turning down people. You don't see, you know, the Google guys turning down people anymore. Uh, They don't turn down. They're not turned down in these acquisitions. I think that's right. Uh, I mean, every every once in a while you see occasional difference. So the great example there is Snapchat, Mm -hmm. right, which did turn down an acquisition offer, right? And that didn't end up going well for them. Well, it's going okay. It's just not going. It's hard. It's a hard road. He's picked a very hard road. Right. And he was able to do so because he had so much control over that company. Exactly. And I think that's the that's the other feature that, that comes in is the people who could go maverick, right, who mm-hmm. could say, no, I'm going to turn down the acquisition offer, right? They both have to have that spirit and the desire to do it, but they also have to have the control over the company. Mm-hmm. And that usually means they are pretty early in the venture capital world, right? If you've gone through maybe three rounds of venture capital by the time you get to that uh, situation, you may well have diluted your control to such an extent that the VCs collectively have the ability to decide whether or not you're going to sell. Mm-hmm. And so what happens then to innovation in this in this scenario? Okay, they're not going IPO then they sell. Um, and there's a few companies that are sort of outliers, like Pinterest, right? I'm just picking a few in the or Slack, Netflix even, as big as it is. All kinds of things that are ripe for acquisition and continue to be independent. Talk about that, what happens when you pick that choice. Yeah, I think that's interesting, right? And, um, you know, it's... I think probably there are as many sort of reasons for that as there are companies that do that. But they are, to me, an example of sort of what, you know, what the world used to have a lot of. Right. Right. Uh, You know, Pinterest is not the dominant social media player, but it is a social media player that's got a sort of strong and continuing existence. Mm -hmm. Same with Slack and communications and messaging. And I think— the value of that is is a couple things. One is just consumer choice, mm-hmm. right? It's that you know what uh, Facebook pissed me off today, right? Uh, I can I, there, there's some place else I can go, uh, but it's also the value of kind of diversity of innovation models and ideas, right? Mm-hmm. I, unless we think we have the best of all possible search engines or the best of all possible social medias, and I don't think we have that, right? We not only want Google and Facebook to try to improve and continue to make their product better, we want a bunch of other people with different ideas of what makes a good social media network Mm -hmm. because some of those are going to catch on with people unexpectedly. Right. And so in terms of quantifying suffocating innovation, how do we do that? And then in the next section, we're going to talk about what we do. Um, what happens to these companies? Well, how do you quantify that? Is if you don't know what could have been, how do you how do how do we legally look at that? As a society, look at that. Under or as a government, look at that. How do we quantify that? And what do you think it's doing to Silicon Valley? Yeah, so it's hard to know, right? Because proving negative is hard. It's hard right. to know sort of what the world would have looked like if we hadn't moved in this mm-hmm. direction. I mean, I think one thing you can say is. We had more competition even when we had dominant players in the 80s and 90s when we had um, mm-hmm. uh, when we had uh, a broader base of companies. We had quicker turnover, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, right, companies were displaced by other companies mm-hmm. uh, more quickly than which is the young eats its old essentially. Right, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and now the older eating the young. Now the older eating the young. Right, mm-hmm. and that I think leads us to ossify. Right, mm-hmm. we end up sort of staying basically the same because you know Google has tried all sorts of interesting new projects. Right, there's mm-hmm. you know lots of people did outside time, a lot of interesting things, but at the end of the day, right, they have a core way they make ninety percent of their money. Right. Right, exactly. And they're not going to jeopardize that core business mm-hmm. for something kind of new and untried. Right. So the – I mean the the problem I think with sort of monopolists and innovation is always that most of what you're doing ends up cannibalizing your existing market. Right. A startup doesn't have that problem. They're cannibalizing somebody else's market. Right. And so is there any way to stay innovative within these big companies? I don't think there is. I think they get rich. They get – they get ensconced, and there's political issues of this exactly happening, Stop things getting shut down or trying small things but not significant things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's harder. I think some companies manage it for longer or better. Google actually sort of yes, held been, on to a flat market structure inside the business for a lot longer than I thought they would, mm-hmm. for instance. And maybe you can do it to the extent that you can um, – uh, really kind of keep it a separate entity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you could probably do that as long as you're not actually a threat to mm-hmm. uh, the kind of core business proposition. Right. You know, so I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't have any insight into this, but Whole Foods might do better at Amazon than somebody else who's kind of brought into the company who's right. a little bit closer to their core mission, precisely because they're not close to the core mission. Core mission. Um, so right now, we essentially have, who would you put into these sort of mega companies that are sort of pushing down an innovation? It would be Amazon? Yeah, I, I mean, I, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, right, are, are the kind of classic companies in mm-hmm. the list. Although, you know, it's worth noting that there are companies who aren't in the public conscious who also do a lot of this acquisition in their spheres. Cisco, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. right, has been uh, yep. a real player in this area. Microsoft actually is still doing a fair bit of it. Mm-hmm. But is it dominating in a way? Is there not innovation happening within their sector? I mean, I think there is some innovation, but part of the question is what's the sector, right? Right. And I think, you know, if the answer is operating systems, they are still dominating operating Mm -hmm. systems. Mm -hmm. It's just operating systems are a lot less important than they were 20 years ago. absolutely. When we get back, we're going to talk about what the uh, remedy to all this is, obviously legal um, and possibly regulatory. We're here with Mark Lemley. He's a professor of Stanford Law School and director of its program in law, science, and technology. We'll also talk about some new interesting areas of law and technology when we get back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent... 
You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're here with Mark Lemley of the Stanford Law School. He wrote a uh, co-authored a paper called Exit Strategy that talked about uh, the, by focusing on exit in the form of IPO or acquisition by a larger company, startups and venture capitalists are suffocating innovation in the tech industry. I would agree with that. Talk about what to do about it. There's obviously question. There's a lot of ways. There's fines. There's uh, not letting them buy things. That's certainly, it would be very hard for most of those companies to buy anything very large now, given the current political environment. And then there's regulatory issues, and then there's antitrust action. What do you imagine is going to happen in the next year or two? Yeah, so I, we seem to be at a moment in which kind of across the political spectrum in interesting ways, there's there's widespread agreement that something needs to be done about the dominance of the tech industry. Mm-hmm. So. I think antitrust, uh, which has uh, kind of often taken a back seat to mm-hmm. innovation, uh, may be having its moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be true both in Congress but also in the agencies and in the courts. Mm-hmm. So I think there are opportunities to step in and to say, you know what, we're not saying you can never buy another company, mm-hmm. uh, but we ought to be looking two, three times and looking pretty closely before we say we're fine with a company buying a startup either in its space or kind of adjacent mm-hmm. to its space uh, because the dominant tech companies have been sort of doing that to preserve their their monopoly for years. Mm-hmm. So what – but the, a lot of people I talk to in, in Washington say that they can't keep up as fast as it's moving, that it, that it takes seven or eight years to do these things. And there's not the political will and there's also not the um, – you know, the FTC people complain, we don't have enough people, we don't have enough ability to do this. Has it gone too far or? Well, so I think, I mean, I think one of the advantages of focusing on startups and the acquisitions Mm -hmm. is it's easier to do this now than it is to try to look backwards and break up something that's been around for 20 years. So a lot of the political talk is, oh, we should break up the big tech. Um, You know, I think that's hard for various reasons. Uh, you know, they they may be very well integrated. It's not obvious today well, that doing that. what's it. What, what, Do you know it's now Instagram by Facebook? <laughs> yes, I did notice that. <laughs> That's just that. a logo. That's just I, a logo. And, and WhatsApp and, uh, right. and Messenger are getting more thoroughly integrated right, right. to try to make it hard to break them up. Mm-hmm. But even if we succeeded in breaking those things up and even if, you know, Messenger and WhatsApp turned out to be viable independent companies. Or the marketplace and products get separated at Amazon or right. YouTube gets cleaved off of Google. Yeah, and I think those things can be helpful, but they don't attack the core dominance problem, mm-hmm. right? So Google's still going to be the dominant search player. Right. Uh, maybe we're less worried about it if they're not kind of using that leverage in other industries. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it makes sense to say, let's have three Facebooks. Let's right. just say, you know, divide your friends group into third and yeah. <laughs> say we're going to break them up. Um, 
And it is the case, as you point out, right, that the big antitrust cases against those dominant players are very long, drawn-out affairs, and quite often they got overtaken and by Microsoft events. Microsoft really wasn't a successful antitrust game because it was a lot of it was pushed back, right? It was just not. It was. I mean, it was. It was successful. I mean, but it was. It was oddly successful. Slowed success, them down. It slowed them down exactly, and then other people could come in around them, mm-hmm. right? And IBM was another case where they, they, that case went on for thirteen years mm-hmm. and kind of ended because the sort of PC boom made IBM's dominance irrelevant. But what you can do with mergers is something very different, right, Mm -hmm. which is we can stop this problem before it starts. Now, the bad news about that is it doesn't immediately make kind of tech dominance go away. So it's less attractive politically for that reason. But it's something you can do right now and every day that doesn't Mm -hmm. require an eight-year investigation or any kind of, you know, messy Mm -hmm. breakup or rollback. You could start to say, no, you know what, these, you know, you're not entitled to buy. Um, Those companies should stay in business on their own, maybe go IPO, maybe stay private. Mm -hmm. They could sell to somebody else who's not a dominant player, and maybe now they'll bring in a new Mm -hmm. uh, company that has interests in this area. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make the dominance uh, of tech companies go away immediately, but it sets the stage. It lays the groundwork for the next generation of this Schumpeterian competition. So where is Schumpeterian now? Now, I'm joking away, but what is the state of competition then? How do we return it to a state that's somewhat healthy? Because it's not healthy right now. Right. Yeah, and I think think the answer to that has to be um, we want a bunch of different people with a bunch of different crazy ideas out there in the marketplace Mm -hmm. because— most of them will fail and one of them will succeed beyond our wildest expectations. And suddenly, you know, Google will get rocked back on its feet in the same way that Microsoft did when the Internet kind of came and surprised mm-hmm. it, right? Or that IBM did when, when, the, when the personal computer came. So how do we came. encourage that? Because one of the arguments that the tech giants make is, well, look, we got to fight China, so we need to be this big. We need to—that that doesn't matter as much as this fight we're having globally. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hear that, although— I think the idea that the way we're going to fight China is put all of our eggs in sort of one big corporate uh, uh, behemoth and hope that it out-innovates China is probably a bad idea, right? That the the way we've the way we fought Japan, which was the uh, boogeyman of the 1980s, who was going to sort of take over all of our jobs mm-hmm. and uh, was not sort of let's have one big company that sort of is an American company that competes with Japan. It was a whole bunch of little ideas that turned out to be better um, and innovating faster. So does antitrust have to change the concept of the legal, the, how to conduct it? Because it's back in the Sherman Antitrust Act. What has to change if you could wave your wand? What would be a— I think one of the good things about this is I don't think you have to write a new law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, getting, getting anything through Congress right now is a Right, they can't agree on idea. much. Yeah. Uh, right. But the antitrust laws are written in kind of very broad terms. They give actually a lot of authority to the courts and to the regulatory agencies— to make an assessment of competition. And what has been absent is the willingness to be more aggressive in stopping some of these mergers. And, you know, I mean, the problem is, right, you need you need the political will to do it, right? Companies both want to merge, of course, mm-hmm. right? The VC industry says, yeah, you know, we like this. This is how we get paid. Uh, don't kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I worry that as we move these mergers increasingly to the incumbents, uh, we are going to end so, up so messing with So do you DC. see a major antitrust case happening against any of them? I know there's investigations all over the place, but um, I didn't do it last time. Yeah, no, I think, right. I think that's right. And, um, and the Obama administration, the FTC was looking at that. 
Yeah, right. We didn't we didn't do anything against the companies. I think the answer is we'll probably see some. We are seeing more activity in Europe, mm-hmm. although the European activity tends to take the form of fines. We exactly we found you guilty. Uh, pay us five billion dollars. Two years later, we found you guilty. Pay us another five billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know I, I think for these companies, we call them it, parking tickets. Exactly, that's a tax. It's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. So. What I hope to see is actually not a kind of Mm -hmm. giant action against Google or a giant action against Facebook. What I hope to see is a bunch of kind of small acts of resistance, right, that say, no, this merger uh, we won't approve because this company might actually sort of grow up to be a competitive threat. Mm -hmm. And if we do that a bunch, I think we can slowly get our way back to a more competitive market of small startups that get Mm -hmm. larger, right, that that start to threaten the dominance of the law. Okay. I want to finish talking about some other areas of law. What you were talking about, robot. Robotics law and we talk a, a few. Give me a few things that are really interesting in law and tech right now. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people are thinking about the problem of, of robotics and AI mm-hmm. from a legal perspective, and you know that, there are a variety of pieces to that. I mean, if everything from you know uh, who's responsible when your self-driving car runs runs somebody over uh, to uh, the problem of uh, figuring out whether your algorithm is discriminating against people mm-hmm. uh, when we can't actually tell you exactly how it works. Right, um, and um, this is becoming uh, this is. Becoming becoming a significant set of issues. More generally, I think there's a there's a worry in a lot of sectors about the fact that increasing numbers of decisions are being made sort of without direct human input. Mm-hmm. The the European Commission in the in the GDPR actually added a requirement of a right to a human decision mm-hmm. over over certain things that influence your life. It, it's hard to know how you implement that, but they're mm-hmm. but they're at least Meaning, worried. Explain what that means. That there sh- this should have a right to make a choice by a person. Yeah. So so let's say uh, your credit score, uh, mm-hmm. right? I am I am denied a loan. I am denied a loan because the algorithm said, "Well, sorry, you're not uh, credit worthy right. enough." I want a human being to look at my loan application and mm-hmm. uh, and say whether or not I should get it. I'm not sure that that's actually better. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, in some ways, it could be worse. Could be discriminatory. Um, exactly. Yeah. Right. I, you know, if I were, uh, you know, honestly, if I were a black man driving at night in some parts of the country, I think I'd rather have a computer decide whether to stop my car than a than mm-hmm. a cop. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, the, there's at least the possibility that we can actually get around, get avoid some right. of those biases. Mm-hmm. But people worry about it. People want to sort of uh, – uh, they don't want to be categorized and understood by algorithms. There was a sort of proposal introduced in the Senate to stop Google from – or require a non-algorithmic alternative to, mm-hmm. to some of the things that are served online. So Google and a Facebook shouldn't just decide what I can see by algorithm. We want a non-algorithmic alternative. I, that led to some interesting speculation on Twitter about what a non-algorhythmic search engine would what look it, like. What would that look like? Uh, so my, the best one I heard was, I'm picturing a computer that's turned off. <laughs> well, it could be contextual, right? Well, it so that, be, I think that, yeah. I, I think what they really right. want actually is... is you ask for a car, you get a car. Yeah, right. right. Uh, but they were they, exactly. What they really want is kind of some human oversight and some, Which some ability Yahoo to control. Which was for years. Yeah. They, were, they were actual people that would put each website within a directory yep. by hand. Yep. People do not really – I would spend a time in those places with them. It was fascinating. It was yeah. a human decision based on where it would go. Of course, it was not scalable, nor was it correct most of the time. Well, that's the thing, right. And I think it's, you know, 
probably in the 1990s, right, you, you know, those humans could outperform a computer at doing that. Probably mm-hmm. today a computer well outperforms humans All the right, time. In, in that kind of classification. Every time. All right, talk, finish talking about the, the autonomous cars. There's all kinds of that with robots and things like that. What, we're not getting into robot rights, but this idea of what changes as we have autonomous cars or thing, technologies like that in our society. Yeah, and so I think one of the, so one of the things that changes is— um, uh, we have a we have a sort of tort system. What happens mm-hmm. when my car runs into yours? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a system that's based on figuring out who's at fault, mm-hmm. uh, and that's based on state of mind. Was I taking enough care? Was I Drinking. drunk? Was I exactly? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make a lot of sense when it comes to robots, mm-hmm. right? And so I think we're going to have to rethink the way we think about um, accidents, mm-hmm. and maybe rethink our kind of whole notion of fault mm-hmm. uh, and punishment, because punishment also doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Christina Mullen. Uh, as a paper in which she, she suggests maybe you should be able to punch a robot that injured you, right? <laughs> There's a lot of our legal system that's actually really about that. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, I, I feel better because I have punished you. You have mm-hmm. suffered for the bad mm-hmm. thing you, you did paid? to me. Yeah. But it doesn't make any sense to talk about doing that with robots. Mm-hmm. And, and I think sort of we've designed a system that assumes humans and human behavior, and as mm-hmm. we start to accommodate that system uh, well, with... humans own the robots. Uh, they will own the robots, and so we can hold the companies liable, although... Boy, I'll tell you, that's going to be a can of worms because it turns out that the person who wrote the algorithm and the person who wrote the training data set and the person who decided what training to do and the person who owns the car are all going to be different people. Right. And so when the car swerves left and hits a pedestrian mm-hmm. and we don't know why, everybody's going to point the finger at everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um but maybe we ought to just sort of get rid of the question of who's to blame and mm-hmm. right focus on the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. And you know what? You hit a pedestrian that's bad. We should we should compensate. We should pay for that. And we should make sure that if your car hits too many pedestrians, there's something wrong with it. We need to shut it down. We need to change the algorithm in some mm-hmm. way. But kind of trying to decide sort of, you know, whether you'd made the morally right decision, uh, which is which is the way I think we think about it right now, doesn't make a lot of sense for robots. Right. And so where does that go then? You don't know. Well, so I, we, it might be that it goes increasingly outside the the courts, uh, the court system, right? And the, uh, the, the sort of doing this by having a bunch of jury trials doesn't make sense, that we ought to have kind of regulatory rules and standards. You know, those two can be problematic. Um, my favorite example here are the self-driving long-haul trucks, mm-hmm. which are out there on the roads already. They, yep. are, they are carrying stuff. But they have to shut down periodically mm-hmm. because um, uh, the way that we allowed them into our existing legal regulatory system is we defined the truck itself as the driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but commercial truck drivers have to take rest breaks from time to time or right. they'll get tired. So we literally shut the truck down for eight hours every so often uh, because the laws require us to let drivers take rest breaks, mm-hmm. and the driver here is the truck itself. All right. One last area of law you think is going to be booming or fascinating related to tech? Um, you know, the one that isn't here, I mean, it isn't here yet, but if I were looking into the kind of medium future, not, you know, not three years from now, but 10 years from now, I think it's space. Um, you know, we've had a, uh, we've there's had a very rand- little space law. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's satellite law. What you can exactly. There is not. There is. There, there is. There is law. It's a lot of it was made in the 1960s with a mm-hmm. very different con- concept of space, and almost all of it with the idea that everything up there is governmental. 
Mm-hmm. And as space becomes a kind of uh, a place we are uh, going and we're increasingly going with private and not mm-hmm. just public uh, uh, moves, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting rules from sort of, you know, staking claims to mineral rights and mm-hmm. media rights to uh, intersections and collisions and orbital paths among the increasing number of satellites that are up there and so forth. That'll be fascinating. Would you, I think we should just declare Elon Musk emperor and then just <laughs> have at it. Anyway, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is Mark Lemley from Stanford Law School. He writes a lot about where law is going with science and technology. Thank you for coming on the show. We'll have you back. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Mark, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mark Lemley, uh, or you can email me at Stanford. All right, and you should definitely read his co-authored piece called Exit Strategy. Um, it drove VCs crazy. For some reason, it got it got a lot of attention online. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. Make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.